When I say the word dystopia, what comes to mind? Some combination of authoritarianism, a lack of personal freedom, and brainwashing. Lots and lots of brainwashing. George Orwell's 1984 explores a society where the government, known as Big Brother, maintains its power by brainwashing the public. Big Brother regularly alters information to fit their agenda, censors thought crime, and even changes the dictionary itself. This is particularly dangerous. As Ludwig Wittgenstein put it, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. And Big Brother is obsessed with limiting your world. And the editors of great newspapers owe a common obligation to the people, an obligation to present the facts and to present them in perspective. One is reminded of the old saying that knowledge is power. In the case of 1984, quite literally. But what if I told you that something similar is happening right now? Our modern media landscape is dominated by deceptive distortions and Machiavellian manipulations. Not only is knowledge power, but a weapon that is being used against you. But that raises a lot of questions like how and why and by who. My friend will be answering all this and more in How Money Changes Reality. Our story begins in the religiously dogmatic world of medieval Europe. Unlike today, the church was at the center of society, dominating medieval life with the power to excommunicate you, casting you out of the only community you'd ever known. The fear of excommunication ran deep in the medieval psyche. Beyond the spiritual doom, it meant becoming an outcast, deprived of both sacraments and society. There were a number of things that could get you excommunicated, but at the top of the list was translating the Bible from Latin into a common language. Many attempts at translating the Bible resulted in suppression, excommunication, and in some cases, even death. This was a serious offense that could cost you your life. But why was that? You see, only the medieval aristocracy had the opportunity to learn Latin. By keeping the Bible only in Latin, the aristocracy made the word of God inaccessible to the general public, a strategy that was entirely intentional. But how did God want us to live? Well, you'd have to take their word for it, and that's where the trouble began. Control over the interpretation of the Bible meant control over its political implications. In the hands of the medieval aristocracy, Christ became a puppet to support the nobility, social hierarchy, and the status quo. For example, nowhere in the Bible will you find the divine right of kings. In fact, Jesus doesn't seem to be a big fan of kings. But the peasantry had no way of knowing that. Not only were the medieval nobility your natural social superiors, but they convinced everyone that they were ordained that way by God. Without the ability to read the Bible for yourself, you had no grounds to challenge them on. And this is how they maintained our subjugation for a thousand years. Despite their best efforts, the elites failed to keep the Bible exclusively in Latin forever, and by extension, failed to maintain their stranglehold 
on public consciousness. Reformers like Martin Luther not only translated the Bible into a common language, but leveraged the printing press to make sure everyone could get a copy. For the first time in European history, the common man had access to the Word of God. And you know what? They were shocked by what they read because it directly contradicted so much of what they had been told for generations. The truth was out, and there was no stopping it now. For over a millennium, this distorted image of Christianity had reigned supreme, functioning as a weapon for elites to maintain their domination over the common man. But now, that weapon was neutralized. Instead of Christ being an idol of state propaganda, he was returned to his role as a spiritual teacher, a lover, and the son of God. Truth led to freedom, not just in a political sense, but in a deeply personal and spiritual sense. But what if I told you that this was not the first time nor the last that those in power cynically manipulated popular culture to further their own interests? What the medieval aristocracy did with the Bible is a perfect example of what Antonio Gramsci called cultural hegemony, where the ruling class manipulates culture to reinforce their own ideology. Instead of criminalizing the teachings of Christ, it was easier to change what it meant to be a Christian. The medieval aristocracy blatantly and intentionally misrepresented, subverted, and recuperated Christianity. The religion itself became a lie to justify the predatory social relations of the time. But to the peasantry, it seemed like common sense, the natural order of things, perhaps even the way things had always been. It's pretty dark. Imagine waking up one day and realizing that not only did you believe in a lie, but a lie that helped someone else control you. My friend, Cultural hegemony isn't something that only happened in medieval Europe, it's happening right here today. One of my favorite examples is the myth of the barter economy. Despite initially being used as a fictional thought experiment and lacking a single example throughout all of recorded history, we are indoctrinated to believe in the mythical land of barter. And for a very simple reason. It reinforces the narrative that humans are inherently greedy, selfish, and would never help each other if we were not personally benefiting. We talked about this at length in this video, so feel free to check that out if you want to learn more. Cultural hegemony normalizes ideologies that you don't even realize you believe. Other examples include consumerism, beauty standards, modern politics, and so on. It's a subtle but powerful way the ruling class brainwashes you. Now, let's address the elephant in the room. Antonio Gramsci was a Marxist, a radical, someone whose ideas are out there, to say the least. But what if I told you that thinkers across the political spectrum agreed with Gramsci's idea of cultural hegemony, even members of the ruling class he was criticizing? To show you what I mean, let's explore two prominent pioneers in 20th century media. Walter Lippmann and Edward Bernays. If Gramsci represents external criticism to the ruling class, then these men represent an insider's perspective. After all, they were both born into wealth, privilege, and power. They attended elite universities, worked for the largest corporations in the world, 
and played instrumental roles in both Western culture as well as government institutions, including the CIA. Let's start with Littmann, who argued that the idea of the public is a theoretical fiction and an abstraction. Littmann called it the phantom public, arguing that society is made up of individuals and at no point are we unified as a public. It's a story we tell ourselves about ourselves, but a story nonetheless. Littmann's train of thought gets interesting when he makes the distinction between agents and bystanders. For Littmann, agents are those who can not only form their own opinion, but act to bring about change in society. Very few people, to say the least. The bystanders are exactly that, bystanders, who are capable only of sitting by as passive spectators. Despite the cynical undertones, this became the prevailing attitude of those at the highest levels of power. But why is that? Well, because to a large extent, it's true. As the pioneers navigated the budding fields of public relations, marketing, and mass media, this cynical perception was confirmed and validated over and over again. It just works. But Littmann himself was primarily a man of ideas, his career characterized by journalism, analysis, and media theory. The man who put those theories into practice was none other than Edward Bernays, the father of public relations. Littmann was the Marx to Bernays-Lenin, with similarly disastrous consequences. Edward Bernays had a long and lucrative career manipulating the public. One of his most popular campaigns was the Torches of Freedom. He took advantage of the growing support for first-wave feminism and equated smoking with women's liberation and equality. Smoking became a symbolic act of rebellion, leading to a cultural shift that arguably still persists to this day. Smoking was powerful, counterculture, revolutionary even. While women were smoking their way to liberation, the cigarette companies were laughing all the way to the bank. It was the biggest marketing scheme the world had seen yet. But Bernays' genius wasn't limited to selling cancer sticks to flappers. He was extraordinarily effective at protecting the interests of shareholders. In the 1950s, Bernays worked for the United Fruit Company, which had locations all over South America. Jacobo Arbenz had been elected as the Guatemalan president and began passing agrarian reform legislation that gave unused land to peasants, greatly benefiting the poor and indigenous populations. Despite being generously compensated for the land, these former landowners, including the United Fruit Company, were infuriated. You see, land is a historically safe investment. It's finite. We can't just make more land. So even if your land is sitting there unused, its value increases no matter what. And if you own a lot of it, it's one of the best ways to take other people's money. After all, they have to exist somewhere. So it didn't matter how generous Arbenz was when compensating these landowners, they were never going to be happy about it. This is where Bernays comes in. He was tasked with 
getting rid of Arbenz. So he put together a propaganda campaign painting President Arbenz as a communist and a threat to not only capitalism, but freedom. A standard Cold War narrative. It didn't matter that Arbenz was a moderate reformer and the stated goal of his legislation was to transform the economy from feudalism to capitalism. It didn't matter that despite extensive investigations, Arbenz was never found to have worked with communists or the USSR. It didn't matter that the Guatemalan people had democratically elected him as the leader of their nation. His policies were bad for the shareholders at the United Fruit Company, so evidence be damned, he's a communist. Bernays specifically targeted the American political class or the agents capable of bringing about change. And that's exactly what happened. It wasn't long before the CIA orchestrated a coup d'etat, overthrowing the Guatemalan government, and installing a military dictatorship that acted as a shareholder puppet state. The land reforms were rolled back. Guatemala fell into civil war for decades. This new puppet state knew that it was unpopular and crushed opposition with blunt force. Protesters and political opponents were regularly imprisoned, sent to labor camps, and executed. All without trial. Estimates put the loss of life at 200,000 people, primarily being indigenous, uh, specifically Maya and Ladino. Human Rights Watch described the military's actions as extraordinarily cruel. US-backed military dictator Efron Rios Montt was convicted of genocide and crimes against humanity in 2013. The sentence was overturned and he passed away in 2018 before his retrial was completed. May the innocent children, women, and men of Guatemala rest in peace. Thankfully, the CIA recognized the error of their ways and stopped using misinformation to justify them overthrowing governments. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. But I want you to notice how Bernays' work is the perfect embodiment of both Lippmann and Gramsci's philosophy. These are two sides of the same coin that recognize a profound truth. That popular culture is a weapon of social control and is regularly manipulated by the most powerful people to reinforce their worldview and protect their interests. And most importantly, this is not new. People with power have been deceiving the public for their own advantage for a very long time. It was true in the Middle Ages, it was true during the Cold War, and it's especially true today. But I'm sure you're wondering, how does one go from a bystander to an agent? Is it even possible? How can you stop being a passive spectator, watching the world unfold at the seams, and instead become an agent capable of bringing about real, meaningful change? In order to understand the difference between agents and bystanders, we need to analyze the work of sociologist Pierre Bordeaux, who wrote extensively about what he called cultural capital. The human brain is weird. We have this obsession with putting things into categories, including people. Typically, we talk about these categories for people as class, you know, 
the upper class, middle class, and lower class. We can subdivide these a little bit more, but that's about it. Your class is typically defined by how much money you make. Now here's where it gets interesting. Your class defines not only how other people see you, but also determines deeply personal things like your tastes and preferences. Pierre Bordeaux studied this phenomenon and coined the term cultural capital. Basically, your cultural tastes become a reflection of your social status. Cultural capital includes all social assets such as education, intellect, style of dress and speech, and often includes things that promote social mobility. Bordeaux outlined three kinds of cultural capital. First, there is embodied cultural capital, which includes things like habits, manners, skills, and accents. The perfect example is speaking a second language. It's the kind of thing that not only impresses people, but can enable you to speak to and influence more people. Second is objectified, which includes things like books, records, clothes, instruments, and even tools. Really, anything that can be physically owned. If someone's ever casually mentioned they drive an electric vehicle, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They say it's about the environment, but it's really just to flex. And finally, there's institutional, which includes things that give you the appearance of and association with legitimacy. Think college degrees, official credentials, or association with a prestigious establishment. Your ability to accumulate these different kinds of cultural capital plays a huge role in your life. It's what separates the bystanders from the agents. And as you get more cultural capital, you get more influence over others. Let's run through an example to show you what I mean. Sophia grew up in a small town where people had little control over their lives, let alone the world. A typical town of bystanders. But then, she became an adult and decided she wanted to make something of herself. After finishing high school, Sophia got a scholarship to a prestigious university in a big city. There, she studied sociology, gaining deep insights into societal structures and behaviors. In the city, she started attending cultural events, book clubs, and workshops. She befriended activists, writers, and scholars. These connections provided her with a network that could amplify her voice and influence. Recognizing the power of the digital age, Sophia started a blog. She used her background, experience, and cultural capital to write insightful articles that attracted a wide readership. The blog became a platform for change, resonating with thousands of people around the world. Sophia's journey exemplifies the transformative power of cultural capital. Each form of cultural capital she accumulated made her more admirable, competent, and influential. Combined, they enabled her to go from a passive bystander to an active agent capable of changing the world. This example also clarifies a key component to social mobility. It's not just about how much money you make, but accumulating a background and worldview that enables you to make that money in the first place. And some people are much better at accumulating cultural capital than others. Similarly to actual capital, cultural capital is not distributed evenly. It pools at the top. Have you ever noticed that most upper-class people just so happen to be charismatic, well-dressed, well-educated, and so on? It's not a coincidence 
they understand how to play the game. And even bringing it back to some of the examples we discussed earlier, learning Latin is a form of cultural capital, one that was extremely important in medieval Europe. Today, the ability to craft popular narratives is a form of cultural capital, as we saw with Edward Bernays. Cultural capital doesn't just expand your influence over other people, but over institutions. A modern example could be the ability to start a trend that works well on social media. Understanding the algorithm expands your influence in a very real, concrete way. In traditional finance, they talk about compounding growth, where you start with a snowball that eventually turns into an avalanche. There's a similar dynamic with cultural capital because having one form of it makes it easier for you to accumulate more. I want to clear up a misconception because if you watch the video so far, you could walk away thinking that there's some secret cabal of cultured rich people plotting to take over the world by deceiving everyone. But that's not really true. And to show you what I mean, we'll need to explore the seminal work of Noam Chomsky. Most people realize that we're all propagandized to some extent. But things fall apart when you get specific. Countless conspiracy theories claim that our media landscape is controlled in a top-down fashion, similarly to Big Brother in 1984. But this simplistic narrative is just plain wrong. In Manufacturing Consent, Noam Chomsky detailed the architecture of our modern perception. He developed an elaborate explanation called the Propaganda Model, which explains how there doesn't need to be direct control and censorship of thought crime. Instead, the media uses selection bias and promotion of right-think to deceive the public. The Propaganda Model operates on five filters of mass media. The Power of Ownership In a world where money speaks louder than words, the ownership of media is concentrated in the hands of a few. These media moguls, steeped in affluence, wield their power to shape narratives that protect their interests and maintain the status quo. They don't just own the means of production, they own the means of perception. Their newspapers, television channels, and online platforms become weapons of propaganda serving their interests and diluting dissent. Advertising as the lifeline. Follow the money and you'll find the truth. The lifeblood of media is advertising revenue. Corporations spend billions to capture your attention and shape your desires. In turn, media outlets tailor their content to suit the advertiser's needs, creating a subtle but powerful symbiosis. The result? A media landscape that prioritizes profitability over truth and consumerism over critical thinking. The symbiotic relationship with power. The media and the government are locked in a dance of mutual benefit. Journalists want inside scoops while politicians crave favorable coverage. This creates a delicate balance where media outlets become dependent on official sources for information. Criticize someone too harshly, and you're out of the inner circle. Play along, and you're rewarded with exclusive scoops and insider access. 
It's a game of give and take, where the stakes are the narratives fed to the public. Flack, the art of silencing dissent. Flack refers to the negative responses to media stories. Corporations, governments, and powerful interest groups unleash their flack to discipline and control the media. Critique the powerful and you'll find yourself on the receiving end of lawsuits, smear campaigns, and public shaming. And in some cases, it's even bad for your health. Think about what happened to Daphne Galizia, the investigative journalist who exposed the Panama Papers and was mysteriously murdered about a year later. It's a chilling reminder of the costs of speaking truth to power. Ideology as the Invisible Hand Finally, we arrive at the grand puppeteer, ideology. The prevailing ideology serves as the invisible hand, guiding narratives and framing debates. In the United States, the ideology of anti-communism and free market capitalism permeate the media landscape. Anything that challenges these sacred cows is marginalized, painted as radical, or dismissed as unrealistic. The result is a narrow window of acceptable discourse, with the extremes carefully policed and the status quo preserved at all costs. Everything that you will ever hear, read, or watch passes through these five filters. Now, this is where things get terrifying, because Chomsky published this back in 1988, before the rise of the internet, which made these five filters all the more powerful. It's pretty clear how these five filters obviously influence social media, but it's only on the fifth filter where things get interesting. Welcome to the internet. We will make America great You see, in traditional media, there was basically one dominant ideology that the American public believed. Again, a combination of patriotism, anti-communism, and free market fundamentalism. There were minor disagreements, but pretty much everyone believed roughly the same thing. The internet turned ideology on its head. Instead of having one ideology beamed into public consciousness, the internet lets you pick your own. Regardless of your preferred ideology, there is some slice of the internet that's designed specifically for you. You actually can be a communist, a socialist, libertarian, fascist, a Nazi, whatever you want. Internet companies don't care what flavor of Kool-Aid you like, so long as you watch a few ads before you drink it. The advent of the internet has introduced a paradigm shift. We've moved from a monolithic ideology subtly imposed upon us to a fragmented digital dumpster fire where ideologies of all shades fight for your attention. The internet, in all its democratic chaos, offers a buffet of ideologies, but what they don't tell you is that the food is poisoned. Yes, all of it. The same mechanisms of manipulation have adapted and found a new home Social media algorithms, driven by profit and engagement, serve to reinforce our beliefs, creating echo chambers that polarize us rather than enlighten and inform. The five filters of Chomsky's propaganda model have not been dismantled, they've simply been digitized. As we stand at the crossroads of this digital age, it's important to realize that the invisible chains of manipulation have not been broken. 
They have merely changed form. My friend, we need to be vigilant, questioning, and critically aware to navigate this complex media landscape. Otherwise, we become unwitting pawns in a game where the rules are written by those in power, even when they're nowhere to be seen. What makes 1984 so profoundly unsettling is the absolute control Big Brother holds over the public's mind. It dictates your very thoughts, demanding conformity and turning dissent into a crime, punishable by death. 1984 criticized the totalitarian regimes of its time, particularly the Soviet Union, notorious for its overt suppression and distortion of the truth. But as Chomsky demonstrates, totalitarian regimes are not the sole culprits in manipulating and maintaining cultural hegemony. In the hands of the free market, the media becomes a subtle yet powerful weapon. We don't need a dictator or a ministry of propaganda to brainwash us. Market forces are more than capable of pulling the wool over our eyes, all on its own. But if history teaches us anything, it's that this is not new. Powerful people have been manipulating the public for a very long time. We started this video by analyzing how the medieval aristocracy used Latin to maintain a monopoly on the Bible. But today, instead of Latin, it's other forms of cultural capital. And instead of monopolizing the Bible, it's truth and reality itself that have been weaponized against us. Powerful people will deceive the public. This was true in the past, it's true today, and it will be true in the future. When describing how to picture the future, Orwell told us to imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. This symbolized the brutal suppression of dissent and the eradication of free thought. Orwell feared the iron fist of totalitarian rule, but he missed a crucial component. It's not the tyrant's boot we should fear, but the invisible hand of the free market, pulling our puppet strings subtly and silently, shaping our perceptions through every article, podcast, and video we consume. Unless we cultivate a critical consciousness and challenge cultural hegemony, this invisible manipulation is here to stay forever. <laughs>